Good morning, everybody. It's great to be here this morning with you. I love coming here. I feel like I leave with a few new friends every time I come here, so that's great. Our passage this morning that we're going to be looking at comes from Luke chapter 9. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. We're going to be beginning in verse 37. Luke 9, 37. And if you will, would you please stand with me as we read the word of God. Luke 9, 37. On the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him on the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Greatness. What is it? What is greatness? And how do you attain it? You know, th- these are questions that, that power or, or that drive a lot of human ambition in the world. Society around us is becoming more and more driven by, by the personal ambition of individuals becoming famous and influential. That's what it's becoming, that, that, that's what it is to be, to be great in our society. More eyes, more people knowing you, more people understanding who you are and the things you've accomplished. And, and in some ways, it's never been more attainable to accomplish this. I don't know how many of you in the last year have heard of the name Trevor Jacob before, but Trevor, Trevor's an, a, a, a former Olympian and, an, and a current YouTuber. He makes his living off of getting people to follow his channel and watch his videos. And last year, he posted a video that got millions of views. And the, the, the title of the video is, I Crashed My Airplane. 
his pilot's license, and if you watch the video, uh, you'll see him taking off in the plane. You'll see his, his plane's engine mysteriously shutting off. He jumps out of the plane in a parachute, and the plane crashes into the mountains. And this video comes off as, as an accident, but, but news broke a few months ago that as a result of an ongoing investigation, he's actually admitted to crashing his plane on purpose. He's lost his pilot's license. He's, he's going to trial. He could end up serving 20 years in prison, and it's all for views, for building a platform, for the sake of building influence and commanding the attention of others. That's nuts, right? That's nuts. But this is the kind of thing that, that some people will resort to in a fame culture. You know, it's a weird world. There's a, there's a growing sentiment that if greatness isn't something at least that we're all, we're all destined for, we have the ability to take hold of it, give it enough grit, give it enough determination. In the immortal words of the great poet Lady Gaga, <laughs> she said in an interview once, I used to walk down the street like I was a star. I want people to walk around delusional about how great they can be and then fight so hard for it every day that the lie becomes the truth. That's the message. That's the sentiment going on in the world. The goal is to vault ourselves upward, to achieve greatness by working hard, by wanting it more, maybe even crashing a plane. The bottom line is we want our lives to really matter for something. We want to, to create a ripple. We don't want to lumber through life in obscurity. And the Bible the Bible gives us a different understanding of what greatness is. Greatness is not at all about these piddly little things that we accomplish in our lives, the things we achieve for ourselves in the world through the exertion of our own will and our own power. True greatness is about submitting ourselves to God's will and God's power. True greatness is not about forging our own purposes, but, but submitting ourselves to God's purposes. You know, if you want your life to truly matter, if you want your life to make a ripple, here's my advice to you. Make it about the kingdom of God. Make it about his kingdom. Make it about the things that God is doing because I promise you, what he is doing is so much bigger and so much better than what you're doing. This isn't easy to do because it requires us to change some of the sin-bred perspectives in our heart in a number of ways. In our passage this morning, Jesus is going to show us a better way, but he's going to do it by confronting some of the hardness of heart that we so often display. Jesus wants us to pursue greatness, but not in a worldly sense. He wants us to pursue the greatness of the kingdom of God with every part of our being. And this passage is going to help us understand that pursuit. So let's, 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 Read together, again, I'm going to start back in verse 37. Let's try to understand a little bit more about what greatness is truly all about. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child, and behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and, and, and shatters him, and will hardly leave him, and I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, 
How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, and Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. It was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. The way to begin living a, a truly great life is first by turning your eyes to Christ. The only way to understand true greatness is first to understand the greatness of God in Christ. What is the greatness of God in Christ? It's a story of power through humility. Power through humility. Here in this passage, Jesus is coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. This awe-inspiring display of his glory to a handful of his disciples. And when he comes down, he is confronted by this father of a demon-possessed boy. And Jesus and three of his disciples, while they were up on the mountain, there, there had been some problems that had arisen His other nine disciples had been sent out with power and authority over demons. If you look back at the beginning of Luke 9, verse 1, this is what happens at the very beginning of the chapter. And Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure all diseases. That's how the chapter begins. And now we're reading that they're unable to cast this demon out. They've been given power. They've been given authority. And Jesus responds to his disciples in what seems like a a pretty harsh response. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how am I to be with you and and, and, and bear with you? This phrasing is very similar to a few spots in the Old Testament that speak about the wilderness generation of Israel who God barred from the promised land because of their lack of faith in him. They didn't trust his goodness to them. They didn't trust his faithfulness to them, despite all the things he had done for them, despite him bringing them through the Red Sea and providing for them in the wilderness. They didn't trust that he had their best interest in mind. As soon as they saw the giants of the land of Canaan, they cowered. Jesus is now comparing his disciples to that generation. He sent them out with his power. He sent them out with his authority. They have been with Jesus during his ministry thus far. They've seen everything that he's done for others and for them. And yet, they're unable to believe. They're unable to continue performing the mission that he has sent them out to perform. They stop trusting in his power. They stop trusting in his authority and begin trusting in their own. And as a result, they fail. The disciples' failure becomes more relevant later on in the passage, but we're going to keep going for now. The demon-possessed boy is brought to Jesus, and Jesus immediately rebukes the spirit and heals him. And, And this story, this story is told by a number of gospel writers, but Luke is the only one who fixates on the crowd's response. And they were astonished at the majesty Or that word can also be translated greatness of God. 
they were astonished at the greatness of God. They see this kind of power that Jesus has. They know that this is the kingdom. This is what we've been waiting for. This is him. What a powerful savior. And they marvel. They marvel at Jesus' power. But then Luke says, while they were marveling, verse 37, while they were marveling at his powerful works, what was Jesus doing? He turns and he starts speaking to his disciples, saying that he's about to be betrayed into the hands of men. While the crowd is rejoicing and amazed and excited that God is doing something spectacular through Jesus, Jesus is talking about the coming hour where he will be forsaken. The crowds will turn and Jesus will willingly bear the scorn of men. You see, it's not all instant power, instant victory for Jesus. Before he is exalted, Jesus knows he has to be brought low. And the disciples, they don't understand this. Verse 45 makes that clear. They can't perceive why this has to be the case, why things have to go this way. They can't understand the great plan of God in the gospel, and who could blame them? From this side of the cross, it's easy to look back. It's easy to see what we can see, but from their perspective, they can't see it. They don't understand. They can't see that, that God would willingly bear the sins of his people, that he would go to the cross. They're unable to see it. They won't understand God's great plan until Jesus is raised from the dead. And not only do they not understand it, they're afraid of it. They don't want to ask him about it. They don't want to explore it with him any further. And one of the, thing Luke, one of the things Luke labors to show his readers in the gospel up to this point is that there's a lot of confusion about who this Jesus really is and what he's come to accomplish. We see it in the, in the very beginning of, of the book, the infancy narratives of Christ, we see Luke weaving together these themes of not only the, the, the mighty kingly figure of Jesus, the king born in the city of David in Bethlehem, but also one who walks the path of lowliness and humiliation, worshipped by shepherds lying in a manger. These are these twin themes that are developed throughout Luke. At the transfiguration, the story that, that comes directly before our passage this morning, Peter, James, and John, they see Christ in his glory. It's a prefigurement of his resurrection. And in the verses I've just read, we see more power, more victory over king, the kingdom of darkness, but we also see suffering, trial, pain, lowliness, humility, the disciples don't get it. Neither does the disciples nor the crowd in this moment truly understand the greatness of God. That's kind of the ironic part of this passage. They're all marveling at the greatness of God and they've missed it. They don't understand it. They don't get that he must be brought low. It's becoming more and more clear that Jesus' words will not be enough. Their hearts will remain blind to these things until they are revealed to them through Christ's death and his resurrection. If we want to answer the call to greatness that God has put on our lives, a call that we will talk about in a minute, we first have to be able to step back and see the greatness of God. We have to be able to see what he has accomplished in Christ 
profound power, absolute power, through utter humility. You know what's amazing about the path of suffering that Jesus calls us to? You know what's amazing about the cross that he calls us to bear? He did it first. He did it to love us when we are unlovable. He did it to embrace us when we rejected him. He isn't asking us to do anything that he himself is not willing to do in exponentially greater ways. And what that means is he knows your difficulty. He's experienced your pain. He walks with you. And if you want a true glimpse of greatness, look no further than Jesus. Greater love has no one than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. That's where this journey begins, looking at our great Savior, looking at God's great plan of salvation. The privilege that we have is that we're able to see clearly what the crowd and what even Jesus' disciples were not able to see. We are able to see this side of the cross, the wellspring of eternal life that has sprung from the humiliation of Christ. Stare at that as long and as often as you can. It will fuel you to embrace the rest of what Jesus is teaching in this passage. Let's look at that right now. Verse 46. An argument arose from them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning in their hearts, took a child and put, them by, put him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. You know, we've talked about the greatness of God in Christ, and I said, that's where the journey has to begin. We have to look at Jesus first. But an intellectual knowledge of what God has done in Christ, it's not enough. It's supposed to change us, isn't it? In the few verses we just read, the focus shifts from the example of Jesus to now the call to his disciples, the call that he's making on their lives. And the call for Jesus' disciples here is very simple and fitting. Be lowly and exalt Christ. That's what greatness is all about in this life, being lowly and exalting Christ. Immediately after Jesus reveals to them his path of humiliation, get this, they start arguing over which one of them is the greatest. Isn't that amazing? They've completely misunderstood. They've completely missed Jesus' example and misunderstood the great plan of God. Here they are posturing themselves for position in the kingdom of heaven. And the crazy part is, it isn't even the only time that they do it in the gospel of Luke. If you go to chapter 22, you'll see them do it again. At the Last Supper of all places, Jesus is talking again about his suffering and his trial and his pain that is coming, and they argue over which one of them is the greatest. And these guys, they don't get it. Jesus understands their motives, and so he, he stops and he brings a child to them, 
and he puts the child by his side. That's important. And he has to realize the effect of this. Jesus isn't trying to point out something good about this child for the disciples to imitate. You know, we see other passages where Jesus has children come and he says, you have to be like one of these children, right? You have to have the faith of a child. He's not, he's not drawing that out in this moment. The reason he brings a child to his side is the child is supposed to represent the lowest, the least valued person. Children, as far as status, social status, are, are about as low down on the totem pole as you get societally. They're not, you know, we're not always used to this because culturally we tend to do the opposite. We tend to revolve our entire world around our children. They become the center of our lives. We esteem them almost to the point of idolatry sometimes. And so in the ancient world, it's not like that. The value placed on children is not very high. Jesus pulls over this child and he tries to get the disciples to understand that in God's economy, the economy of the kingdom, there is no small or unimportant disciple to fight each other for honor, to fight each other for greatness. It does nothing but belittle each other. And the truly great disciple is not the one who's able to push himself to the top. You know, that's kind of how our world teaches us to act, right? It's how, certainly how it acts in the, in, the, in the working world, right? You're constantly chasing after a promotion or to vault yourself over top of someone else. The truly great disciple instead is the one who's able to push himself to the bottom, to lift up his brothers, to lift up his sisters, to make himself low. It's not the honorable one, the one who everybody esteems for their accomplishments, that's the great disciple. It's the one who serves the least of his brothers. Jesus came to serve. Jesus came to serve. And we serve one another in the same way. No person is too small for us to build up. No person is too small. No task is too small for us to give our time and our efforts to the economy of God's kingdom. That's it. That person, the least, is the greatest. A similar point is being made in the next few verses as John excitedly reports to Jesus that they have stopped a man from casting out demons. I don't exactly know how this is supposed to help or what John's thinking in the moment, but this is what he says. Jesus, we cast out a demon, or we, we, we made a man stop casting out demons because he doesn't follow with us. You know, we don't know the identity of this stranger. We're not told, but he's not a part of their regular entourage. He's, he's heard the message of Jesus. That's clear because he's casting out demons in Jesus' name. He seems to have embraced it in good faith. Nothing would tell us otherwise. Now, why do the disciples feel like they need to stop him? Again, if you go back to 9 verse 1, they are the ones who have been given authority and power to cast out demons. And I don't think it's a coincidence that earlier on in this passage, they failed to do that. Our passage begins with them failing to cast out a, a demon, even though they have been given the power. They have been walking with Jesus. They are a part of his his inner circle. They have been sent out in power and, and they probably feel pretty important. 
important to the kingdom. And the stranger, who is this guy? He's embraced the gospel. He's doing the work that they are unable to do themselves. He probably feels like a little bit of a threat. Having him stop what he's doing is just another posturing move. There's a hierarchy here. Let's not screw it up, right? Jesus' response adds another layer to his expectation for his disciples. They aren't just called to make themselves low and, and, and serve one another. He urges them not to lose sight of the reason for their calling in the first place. I, I want to point out a couple of things. In both of these quick stories, they revolve around the name of Jesus. The disciples are receiving the child, it says, in Jesus' name, which effectively means they're receiving Jesus. The stranger is casting out demons in Jesus' name. He's making headway and spreading the message of the kingdom and making Jesus known. And Jesus is very happy. He's very happy with that. But it's about him. It's about the kingdom. It's about his name. And the answer to John is, don't stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. You see, they've gotten so caught up with, with where they're each going to land in terms of the hierarchy, in terms of their status in the kingdom, that they've actually lost focus on the mission. They, they don't seem to care that good things are happening for the kingdom. They just care that the wrong person is doing it. And Jesus knows, he knows that these guys are going to need all the friends that they can get. You can read just a little bit later in the book, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. They're going to need they're going to be put in positions where they need genuine help. They can't turn, turn that away. And this reminds me of Paul's words in Philippians. Because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is, in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is being preached. And of this I rejoice. Paul is in prison, being defamed by some, and even he can rejoice in these people's proclamation of the gospel because it means the mission of God is going forward. Christ is being exalted, and it's not about him. Jesus is encouraging the same kind of heart in his disciples. They must remember it's about Jesus. Their pride is covering their eyes. It's masking the purpose of the kingdom. It's hiding this desire in them to see the kingdom advance. That's the tricky part about struggling against pride. Your life will never be about Jesus if it's about you. I think we've all been susceptible at one time or another to that wrongful heart motive. We have to constantly remind ourselves and each other of what, what we're doing in the church and in the world. It's only ever been about Jesus. There isn't enough glory in the universe for you and for Jesus. Have you thought about that before? It all belongs to him. Only when we humble ourselves can we finally give Jesus what he deserves. The struggle against pride and posturing ourselves, it's a difficult one, no doubt. And, and you can think of examples of it, both corporately and individually, 
On the corporate side, I think it can be easy for us sometimes to treat even entire groups of Christians as other. It could be a group that disagrees with you on some secondary doctrine, even if it's an important one. It could be a group that maybe uses strategies or methodology that you find uncomfortable or, or frustrating. The reality is the Christian world at this point is very diverse. And, and to be sure, there are fundamentals and, and things that we can't budge on, but there's a lot of room outside of those things where churches set up camps in different places. And it can be easy for Christians in one church to look down, to look down on and, and snub their noses at people of a different stripe who think differently or do things differently. And we have to be very careful how we speak about brothers and sisters who aren't exactly like us. You know, I think the pandemic is a good example of what it can look like. The church's response to the pandemic of how, of how secondary interpretative or practical differences create major rifts in the church. The attitude that we should have toward others who may even sometimes dramatically differ from us in Christ, is the same as Jesus is saying in this passage. The one who is not against you is for you. Let's remember who all this is about. Not get caught up in an attitude of tribalism. And on an individual level, it can be easy to fall into this stuff too. Even, even inside the church family, we can sometimes be tempted towards things like Jealousy. Jealousy that one person is receiving recognition for something that we feel like we should be receiving recognition for. We can stray into thinking that, that we're maybe more important than others because, because we have a deeper commitment. We have a greater influence. We have better gifts. And Paul speaks, that, speaks to this very clearly in Corinthians. We all have God-given roles to play in the, in the kingdom. And every person's role is important. There are no small disciples. The eye can't say to the foot, I don't need you. God blesses us so that we serve one another. And I don't know anybody's heart in this room, but, but I would urge you to think about this carefully. Is there anybody who you feel like you have to spiritually posture up against? Does that happen in your life? Be honest, because I know what happens in mine. <laughs> I have those moments where I feel like I have to puff myself up against someone else. It can be for a variety of reasons. It can be someone in your family. It can be someone, someone who's a friend in the church. It can be someone in your small group. It can be a, a church leader. It can be a number of different people for a number of different reasons. But who are those people that you feel like you've got to puff yourself up, make yourself bigger, vault yourself over? Jesus, Jesus wants us Instead, to realize and remember that it is not about us, it's not about them, it's about Jesus, it's about the growth of his kingdom. He wants us to pursue greatness in God's economy. Now that happens as our lives become increasingly less about ourselves and we give ourselves to serving Christ and each other. So let me ask you this, how could you go, go above and beyond this week to serve a brother or sister, especially 
one who you normally feel threatened by, especially one who you normally feel like you have to posture up against. And where is, where is pride and self-importance putting up a barrier to love in the body? Where is it putting up a barrier to your service for the kingdom? The only way to tear down that barrier is to entrust yourself to God. And so going back to the beginning of this message, spend time, spend time looking at the goodness of God toward you in Christ. Spend time looking at how good he is, looking at his humiliation, his, his, his service to you, that he would take your sin, that he would die for you, that he would pay your debt. Only by truly witnessing the lowliness of Christ can you be transformed into his image. And I pray that every one of us would begin to see that more and more this week. Philippians 2, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held onto, but rather he made himself nothing. Taking on the form of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the humble Savior who loves us, saves us, serves us, and calls us to be the same. Be filled with his spirit today. You want to be great? Be like Jesus. The world is going to give you a different mission. It's going to tell you different things. It's worthless nonsense. Let your life be one big billboard advertising the greatness of your Savior and his unstoppable kingdom. And let that happen by way of imitation. Humble yourself as he humbles himself. Serve as he serves. Love as he loves. Have the same mind as Christ Jesus because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you have given us a Savior not just a savior who, who sits simply transcendent, who, who considers us from afar, but a savior who is willing to give up his glory, a savior who is willing to, to condescend and become one of us for our sake, to take on the lowliness of humanity, to take on our sin, and to humiliate himself even to death on a cross. Would you fill us with an appreciation of what you've done for us so that it changes us and transforms us? Life is so much more frustrating and difficult 
when we just make it about ourselves. It's so much less impactful. We don't live a life that glorifies you or your kingdom. God, I pray that that wouldn't be the case for any of us here this morning. That you would use the gospel to energize our hearts. You would use the gospel message and the example of Jesus to give us um, a, a, a desire not to serve ourselves, but to serve others and to serve you. God, I don't know how that has to happen this week. Holy Spirit, you know, you know in each one of our hearts the areas that we feel or the people who we feel we need to posture up against. Who are those people? What are those places? Where are those, those times where our pride comes up and, and keeps us from being humble servants? Where we try to vault ourselves for position. God, I pray that you would eradicate that in our hearts. And again, do it by the gospel. Do it by giving us, us the security of knowing and understanding who you are and what you've done. Would you not let us leave here unchanged people? We know there is only one who is great, and it's you. Let us live our lives based on that and nothing else. It's only you. It's only your kingdom. Help us to press on, Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.